Our scripture for today is from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. This can be found in your bulletin on page 7. Before we read together, please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your word, to encounter your presence through it. Please bless Pastor Mike as he preaches. Through your Holy Spirit, work powerfully in what he has to say to us and help us to be able to hear it and to respond. Lord, we know that, in fact, the nations are in an uproar. We are created for creativity. We have tremendous capacity for calamity, and the evidence of that is all around us. Help us to sense what you want to accomplish in our lives, and especially through this passage this morning. We give you thanks and praise in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. The word of the Lord. If you're new here, you probably have to get used to a few of our quirks and habits. One of them, though, I hope it's good, is that we make copies of the sermon manuscript available in case English isn't your first language or in case you want to review it later. So the lovely Stephanie Redinger will be handing out copies. Get her attention as she goes by in case you want one. Really feels like whether you're ready or not, a new school year is starting. And we're starting a new series on the book of Genesis this morning. And I'm not handing out a syllabus, though I'm hoping to use this episode in Genesis 11 as a sort of window into what we're going to see and hear in the book of Genesis. But I want to start with a little two-part quiz this morning. Who can tell me the significance of this date, July 20th, 1969? Anybody? May we have the next slide, please. The date on which the American astronaut, Neil Armstrong, how did you miss the 50th anniversary celebrations this year? Set 
his foot on the moon, the first human footprint on the moon, July 20th, 1969. And there's debate about whether Mr. Armstrong actually got the line right, but he insists that what he said was, one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. I think maybe we'd update that language a little bit, maybe say humanity instead of mankind, but never mind. It was a great moment. Part two of the quiz. Who can tell me the significance of this date? April 22nd, 1970. We're heading for the 50th anniversary of that next year. Anyone? Earth Day. There was a lot going on 50 years ago. How, how many of you remember this photograph or have ever seen it? Taken from the Apollo 8 mission on Christmas Eve, 1968, and this might have been the most impactful photograph ever published. It changed the way we think about this planet that is our home. And one of the things that happened in the wake of that awakening is that Earth Day was born. Wisconsin Democratic Senator Gaylord Nelson, <coughs> yay Wisconsin, got the idea for a national teach-in on the environment. And here's something truly strange. He persuaded Pete McCloskey, a conservative-minded Republican congressman from California, to serve as his co-chair. Try that in 2019. And on April 22, 1970, 20 million Americans took to the streets parks and auditoriums to demonstrate for a healthy and sustainable environment in massive coast-to-coast -coast rallies. Anyone here went, went to one of those? A few of us were alive and awake back then. <laughs> By the end of that year, the first Earth Day had led to the creation of the United States Environmental Protection Agency, the passage of the Clean Air, Clean Water and Endangered Species Act. And if you want to know more about it, go to earthday.org and look at the History of Earth Day page, because I'm just basically reading right off of that. And Earth Day also spawned one other great thing, right here at the University of Wisconsin, the Nelson, same Gaylord Nelson, Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies, and its first director, Professor Cal DeWitt, is a member of our congregation and continues to serve. Cal's continuing to serve as our elder for creation care, and if you want to know more about Earth Day, forget the website, talk to Cal. <laughs> he knows a little bit about it. But here's what I want to ask. What trajectory have we been on in the last 50 years? There's no doubt that our technological capacity is still rocketing upwards. We're still reaching for the stars, even quite literally. Lots of Countries and a few private companies have space programs. In fact, as uh, Raleigh mentioned during the prayer, our, our congregation even has a space program, right? <laughs> <laughs> what we decided to give, well, for those of you who are new here or don't know, we, we rent this space and we have a lease for three more years, but what happens after that, we don't know, and we're, we're trying to figure that out right now. So we named the group 
looking for a new space for us, the Space Force. It's an acronym. I hope you guys got this card last week. I don't know if we have any more around. I hope it's on your fridge. Space Force, seeking a place to accomplish Christ's endeavors for, that's space, future opportunities of redemptive city engagement. So there we are. But more seriously, Space Force. I couldn't help noticing that about the same time as we formed our Space Force, the Trump administration is actually proposing a sixth branch of the United States Armed Forces to be called, you guessed it, the Space Force. But think about what that means for a moment. Militarizing space. Former Secretary of Defense James Mattis said it very clearly. This is a quote. Space is becoming a contested war-fighting domain and we have to adapt to that reality. Star Wars is now. And unfortunately, that reality is a basic fact of human life. It's a fact of human life on earth, and it will be a fact of life no matter how high we reach into heavens. Wherever human beings go, war and strife will follow us. We are, among other things, a violent race. Genesis will tell us a bit about that too. But violence is not the only thing that follows in our wake. As our technological capacity grows and grows, so unfortunately does the amount of collateral damage that we're capable of causing. Technological advancement always seems to have unintended consequences. How much has the temperature of the atmosphere and the ocean risen in just the last 50 years since the first Earth Day? How many glaciers aren't here anymore? How many forested acres have burned? How many species have died off? And what is the overall trajectory? We should be thinking about that. These are not theoretical questions. I'm talking about things that are happening right now. I can't help noticing that we're actually doing less and less about some of these things. We aren't enforcing the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts the way we could. We've gutted the Environmental Protection Agency. The Endangered Species Act is itself threatened with extinction. And this is not a political rant. This is not a political issue. This is a practical issue. And this is an issue and a question that goes to the heart of what it means to be human. Our call to worship this morning wove together the creation story from Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. One of the most beautiful psalms about what it means to be human. Above all, it's a psalm that celebrates God's glory. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the opening and closing line of Psalm 8. It celebrates God's glory, but it also celebrates the glory God conferred on us. What are we that you even notice us? What is that glory that God has given us? What is the glory and honor he's crowned us with? It's to care for God's creation. It's to manage this planet for its own good and ours and for God's glory, the glory of the one who made it. To make all creation sing, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's what human beings are supposed to do. But what trajectory are we on as a human race? The heavens may capture our collective imagination. But here's a question that nags me. I'm going to go back and 
confess that I was awake and alive in 1970, and I remember Neil Young in the song after the gold rush singing, flying Mother Nature's silver seed to a new home in the sun. But how can we imagine a new home for ourselves in the heavens if we can't even take care of the home we already have on earth? There's an irony of, well, cosmic proportions in that. And this is the irony that frames the passage that we heard from Genesis 11 this morning. The portrait that passage paints of the human race is exactly the one that I've been sketching out. We are a clever race. We can refine and rework the raw materials of nature to achieve amazing results. We don't have to be limited by the possibilities of clay and stone construction. We can fire bricks out of clay into strong and uniform building blocks. All it takes is a little energy and a little ingenuity. We can glue them together with refined petroleum. That's what bitumen is. Our long addiction to oil is, is attested to here in the book of Genesis. For us, human beings, the sky is not the limit. We don't have to remain anchored to the earth. We can build towers to the heavens. We can fly. We can escape earth's gravity. We can cross the frigid vacuum of space. And as God says in the story, if they can do this, and this is only the beginning, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. But what's the outcome of that going to be? What is all of this doing to the world? What's it doing to us? Those are the kinds of questions that the book of Genesis raises. And the story we heard this morning is about those kinds of questions. There are three things in the story that I just want to pay uh, some brief attention to this morning. First, the, the portrait of the human race that this passage paints for us. One of our main questions as we study Genesis over the next few weeks will be, what in fact, the main question is, what does it mean to be human? So what picture of humanity is this story painting for us? The second thing I want to pay attention to is the portrait this passage paints of God. Because Genesis also tells us a lot about God. What kind of person, what kind of personality, what kind of being is living up there unseen in the heavens? And third, when you put those two portraits together in relation to one another... God the creator and the creatures God made in God's image. When you do that in the larger context of the story Genesis tells, what is it actually saying about us? What is it telling us not only about what we are like, but what we are supposed to be like? What is our human vocation? What is our calling? What is our labor supposed to be directed towards yeah, we're celebrating human labor today, but what is, or tomorrow, but what is our labor for? What are we for? What were human beings created for? So that's a brief sketch of this introductory sermon and really of this whole series of the book of Genesis. Who are we? Who is God? And what does it mean? What does all that mean for how we're supposed to live? What were we created for? So please keep those questions in mind over the next several weeks, maybe months. I've already talked about how Genesis 11 portrays humanity, and I 
maybe I'm being a little bit grim, but maybe there's a reason for that. But let me focus a little more closely on one essential human characteristic, one defining human faculty, imagination. We can look at almost anything, and we can imagine something better. Or, to uh, honor the other half of the people in the room, we can imagine something worse. I don't know if you're the glass half empty or the glass half full kind of person. Genesis is actually both. But the theme of language is pretty important in this passage, right? To be human is to have language, to speak. And language is a tool among other things. But here's one thing language does. It embodies and demonstrates and empowers and instrumentalizes our human capacity for aspiration, our relentless upward mobility. Human language has these two great things called comparatives and superlatives. Big things get our attention. By the way, the word for tower in Hebrew essentially means a really big thing. Gadol is the word that means big in Hebrew. And if you turn that into a noun, that adjective into a noun with a little prefix, a little mem prefix, you get the word migdal, tower, or just, wow, that's a big thing. We love big things. We love to build big things. And we're good at imagining bigger things. And we always seem to be reaching for some elusive biggest and best thing of all. That's what we're like. We are a relentlessly ambitious race. And that's not all bad. That's one of the ways in which we bear God's image, by being ambitious. There's some, so we're going to have to put that in perspective over the next few weeks. There's something else that will ring true in this ancient portrait of humanity that in some ways seems to know us better than we know ourselves. Genesis 11 shows us that we are also an anxious and insecure race. We feel a nagging sense of impermanence. We're mere mortals and we know it. And we always want to make a name for ourselves. We don't want to be gone. We don't want to be forgotten. We don't want to be scattered. And we lie awake at night and scratch our heads during the day thinking about this. Our imagination can also fuel and be fueled by our anxieties. So that's a sketch of us, according to Genesis. We shine with creativity, the creativity that the Creator created us for, and we can do truly amazing things. Even God sees that from way up in heaven. Our our creativity is rocket-fueled by the twin engines of ambition and anxiety, but we are also endlessly capable of calamity and catastrophe. We can build it. Yes, we can. But we can also break it. We often harm the things around us and the people around us. And in the process, we're harming ourselves and undermining our own security. The collateral damage we caused to the world, to the biosphere, to the home, the only home we have, may already be beyond our ability to repair. And even worse, the ruin that we bring on ourselves is almost beyond telling. Almost, I say, because 
This is exactly what the book of Genesis is trying to tell us. We are literally too clever for our own good. And we better figure this out. What about God? What picture of God emerges from this morning's story? Well, it's kind of a a gritty, grainy photograph of God. And at first glance, God might not look a whole lot better than we do in this story. God might look sort of jealous and mean and anxious if you look at this story the wrong way just as anxiety-driven as we are. Oh no, they're, they're knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. We better slam that door. Yeah, I was alive in the 70s and 60s. Better slam that door in their faces. How about, how about confusing their language? That should, that should at least be a good short-term strategy. But take a closer look. Put this story in the context of the whole book of Genesis. Let's... let's Remember that this is chapter 11, and 10 chapters have already come before that. 10 chapters in which we've already learned that God is the creator of all things. That God looked at the things God made and said, this is good. Let's also remember that this God who created all things is also capable of uncreating all things. God can send a flood, for example, to wipe out almost all the life on the earth. But most important, the book of Genesis tells us very clearly that this is not what God actually wants. God's desire is to preserve, not to destroy what God created. God wants to restore the created goodness that the serpent has vandalized. God wants to save a human race that constantly threatens to bring ruin on itself. God is good in this story because God is good in real life. This morning's story is a story of judgment, but it's a judgment motivated by mercy. God knows better than we do what we can do. And God also knows better than we do what we cannot do. And that might be the most important thing in this story. God knows that no matter how far we can reach into the heavens, we will never build or navigate or scheme our own way into heaven. I think I want to say that again. No matter how far we can reach into the heavens, we will never be able to get to heaven. And I'm going to say more about what I mean by heaven because it isn't some Gnostic, cosmic, ethereal, unearthly reality. It's a home where God and human beings live together on earth, where we rule with Christ on earth. God knows, though, that we can't get there by ourselves. We can't secure our own security. Only God can make us secure. God knows that we can't force our way into that heavenly reality. Only God can open the door to heaven. God knows that we cannot enter into the settled rest that God has in mind for us by our own effort or lack of effort. Only God can lead us there and settle us there and make us secure there. And that's what the story is telling us. We were indeed created for a universe in which earth can reach up to heaven. But that only happens when heaven first comes down to earth. Our hope is not to storm the gates of heaven like conquistadors, but to receive security as a gift from a Father in heaven 
who loves us. We might be able to extend our lives for a few years, maybe even a lot of years. Who knows? But God wants to give us something we can never secure for ourselves, eternal life. God, you know this, of course, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And let's not lose sight of one important word in John 3.16, the world. God loves the world. Jesus came not just to save you and me, not just to save souls. Jesus came to save the world, to redeem the creation, to make it a place where the cry will go out from the throne of God. Look, now the home of God is with human beings and he will be their God and they will be his people. God created us and is redeeming us into a reality where we can serve with Jesus as priests and kings and queens on this earth. So this morning we heard a great story from the book of Genesis. A story of ambition and anxiety. A story in which the endless human refrain rings out. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build something that can reach to the heavens so that we won't be scattered, so that we won't be forgotten. The story ends, as it must, with those ambitions unrealized and all those anxieties coming true in spades. That's what happens when our security is based on our own efforts. But let me peek ahead in the book of Genesis. We're in 11 this morning. Let's go into chapter 12 where we come to the story of Abraham. What's interesting to me is that with Abraham, God begins the conversation by appealing to precisely those same human anxieties and ambitions that operate in chapter 11 and in every other story about human beings. Abraham wanted a great name. Abraham wanted a secure home. Abraham wanted to be blessed. God comes to Abraham and says, okay, I will bless you. I will be the source of everything you want. I will make a great name for you. I will give you this land. I will bless you and I will make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. God has an imagination too. The big issue in Abraham's life is not, can you rely on yourself? It's, can you rely on God? Can you trust God? Adam and Eve didn't trust God. The way back to heaven, the way back to Eden, the way back to a settled rest with God on earth is by trusting God. So can you trust God is one of the big questions Genesis is wrestling with. And we need to go back to the beginning, and we will go back to the beginning next week to get the whole story. But can we trust God? We really struggle with that for our whole lives. That's why faith is such an issue a salvation issue, and a life issue. But let me give you just one delicious hint about where the story of Abraham is going. Abraham doesn't build a tower. Abraham never even builds a house. But Abraham builds an altar. In fact, he builds several altars. To build an altar is to recognize the thing I'm talking about, that blessing doesn't come when we seize it by our own efforts. Blessing comes when God graciously comes down 
to bless us. To build an altar is to look up to the heavens and realize that God is offering us something even more than a great name and a secure and permanent home. God is offering us friendship. Abraham was called the friend of God. Whatever else we understand, my friends, let's understand that. God is inviting us into an amazing relationship. God is inviting us to be his children forever. And whatever else we direct our lives towards, whatever else we build, my friends, let's build altars. Let's let our hearts be formed so that when we look up to the heavens, and by the way, maybe the clouds will co cooperate tonight. I hear that we might be able to see the aurora borealis tonight, so drive outside of Madison and look up if the sky is clear. But when you do that, don't just imagine how could we get there? What could we build to get there? Imagine a God calling us into a relationship. And instead of saying, we can build this, say, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord.